And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! I'm trying to think what that last syllable reminds me of, and I don't know. Someone passing wind. <laughs> well, it could be that, yeah, I suppose it could. Anyway, it's... Um... There's definitely an illusion there I'm not picking up. How have you been this week? Uh, reasonably well. Uh, not getting as much reading done as I'd like. Uh, I've only read two novels this year, and I really feel like I should have read quite a few more. Uh, I'm also supposed to have read uh, a bunch more short fiction than I have at the moment. But we do what we can, you know. Well, one of the things that's uh, an interesting thing for a reviewer, and I'm sure I'm not the only one to feel this. I mean, I'm reading... Um, Guy Kay's River of Stars right now, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yep. I'm sort of wallowing in it. I'm reading it the way you ought to read a Guy Kay novel, and that's not the way a reviewer ought to read a novel. I ought to be getting the thing out of the way and going on to something else so I can yes. satisfy the magazine. Well, that's how, how I read Under, Under Heaven, which I loved and adored, uh, mm. and it's one of my more pleasurable reading memories of the last few years, and it's because I deliberately took a work hiatus, which I don't normally do, took my family away on holiday, and took the then galley of Under Heaven and read this quite, by my standards now, quite big book. Because it was about five, six hundred pages or something. Uh, and mm -hmm. loved it. I just I just wallowed in it. Yeah, it's a great way of putting it. And enjoyed it a very great deal. So, yeah. And I envy so, so, getting to read River of Stars. Well, I mean, I, 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 and I've, I'm, I'm doing it on a schedule, on a fairly leisurely schedule. But, you know, it, it means that I'm going to have to read three or four or five other books yeah. fairly quickly within about three weeks. Um, so there, there are those books that uh, – it's interesting. There are books that are just very fast reads, that are very efficient, um, that are not terribly challenging. You don't – you want to – they're plot books, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, a good example is um, I did the, the, the Ian Tregillis novels. Yes. The Ted Kosmaka novels. They're fast moving, they're thriller based novels. Yes, yeah, yeah. And they're very enjoyable, but they're enjoyable because you just race through them. And then there are the leisurely kind of thoughtful novels, um, something like uh, John Crowley's trilogy, where you just can't read it fast. You cannot yeah. absorb that kind yeah. of. And then there are the ones that you just want to sort of relax into, and Guy Gabriel Kay, I think, is in that category. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the most recent book I read was Charles Stross's forthcoming novel, Neptune's Brood, which mm -hmm. is nominally set, I was sorry, is nominally a sequel to uh, uh, Saturn's Children, set in what Charlie calls the Freyaverse. Uh -huh. And um, I was just, in fact, tweeting about it because I was looking at it. And it really is, it, it, it's quite a, imagine historical debt theory plus uh, Doc Smith's Lensman minus faster than light travel, and throw in a good Spanish prisoner scam. That sounds like a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it's sort of weird science fiction-y, space opera Asperger-y fun, but it's a lot of fun, you know? Well, there's a, certain, there's a certain kind of fiction that just is fascinating because of the weird way it combines things. I'm thinking of, uh, what was it? Nick uh, Mamatus' novel was a move underground. The one that has yeah. beatniks and uh, beat uh, the, the San Francisco poets and 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 yeah. Riel, yeah, and Cthulhu in it all at yeah, once. Yeah, yeah. And it's just uh, conceptually a lot of fun. And there's a lot of stuff like that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Neptune's Brood. Uh, I think what I found interesting about it was he attempts to play with the most of the uh, physics net net up. So it's hard SF. There is no faster mm -hmm. than light travel. Uh, mm. There is, however, uploading of personalities and all that kind of thing. So you get this idea that the way you um, establish a new, say, interstellar colony is you send us a, a starship with a bunch of uh, people on it, but the people are either recorded personalities with bodies already sort of frozen, ready to get downloaded into, or mm. they're in slow, you know, like, they've slowed their processor rate down. So that for them, the thousand years it takes to get to their destination feels like four years or something. Yeah. And is... then when they get there, they set up the uh, basic requirements so you can start start beaming in new personalities to get downloaded into bodies to start working and form the colony that you're going to be uh, doing. And the surrounding limit to this is money because money under you know, finance, wealth, what mm -hmm. under, under underpins everything. Debt does. 
And so it's a concept of normal money as we would spend it, what they call fast money, medium money, which we would consider normal physical assets, and something called slow money, which actually holds its value over millennia so that you can have debts that you trade over millennia. The trick is, though, and this is where the Spanish prisoner uh, fraud comes in, uh-huh. what's the great con in a universe where you're actually creating a galactic civilization, but it's limited by uh, fast by the, by the speed of light and the, uh-huh. the transmission of money at the, sp- at, at the speed of light or below the speed of light. And the great con is, of course, fast night travel itself. If you can invent fast night travel, the entire slow money value disappears because you can Just, literally, yeah, exactly. literally take your fast money from place A to place B. And this book features, is based around that idea. And yes, there's all kinds of Charlie Stross having fun stuff. You know, there's a you know, character who's actually a, an accountant who ends up, you know, uh, downloaded into a mermaid body, uh, swimming deep, you know, beneath, you know, thousands of meters down in this ocean, hiding from, you know, pirates. I mean, she's on a gothic church strapped to the back of a spaceship going through space when they're attacked by pirates who turn out to be accountants. All this kind of weird, get goofy fun. And it sounds like a lot of fun. And one of, I mean, one of the things I like about Charlie Strauss's novels in general is that he seems to be having fun. I think he, he is. Seems, even the, even and and the other thing which is interesting about this one, which I I think is brilliant without even having looked at the novel, is the business business about money. Yeah. Because the other thing that, that that Strauss has always considered, which which traditionally science fiction hasn't spent a lot of time with, yeah. is economics. Is how do you how do you fund these things? How do you uh, fund interstellar travel? How do you? Um, it, it was just. Uh, one of the things that was classically missing, you know, um, well, Heinlein would allude to it every once in a while, yeah. but, but these gigantic, monstrous space colonies that uh, that exist in the 23rd century in, um, actually, I should say this, Kim Stanley Robinson in 2312 spent some time in that novel on the economics of how you could pay for these things. But, but by and large, it's something science fiction has never spent a lot of attention to. No. I mean, look, science fiction's great pragmatist in this area, from my mind, was always C.J. Cherry. She no. always logically built the underpinnings of her universe in social science terms, in either anthrop- anthropological terms, economic terms, those kind of things, which don't appear to be the most fun things to build a E. Doc Smith space opera on top of. Um, so, you know. But apparently Charlie read a book called Debt the First 5,000 Years, which came out uh, last year from a guy called David Graeber. And that was an underpinning for for this book. And actually reading the novel makes me want to sort of go off and read the Graeber book just to see because um, I've never come across – I mean the ideas make sense to me. I I studied economics at one point. But uh, I haven't read it in a science fiction novel done this way before. And it will be interesting how people react because – I don't think it feels much like Saturn's children. All it really takes is this idea of what post-human people, I guess, are like. You know, I mean, it's like the, yeah. the, this one opens where this woman has to get from point A to point B in a hurry, and the first thing they do is they offer to chop off her legs to save uh, storage space. Uh huh. Because you know they just grow them back when you get to the other end. Which is reasonable, I guess. And I, I've seen that idea somewhere yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. So it's all this sort of stuff. It doesn't make, well, the, the other thing about Charlie Strauss is he and uh, there's a generation of his generation, I should say, it's not the youngest generation anymore, have no have no hesitation borrowing things from earlier science fiction. Oh, I mean, no. They have every right to do that. Of course they do. I mean, what I would say is Charlie's great to me. Great, his great strength and his great weakness is he's clever. Yes, he is. And when you read a Charlie Strauss novel, you're I don't think he would. He, I don't have, have no idea if Charlie would agree. You're reading. 120,000 words of someone delighting in being clever. Yes, that's true. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that unless it becomes obnoxious. Yeah, well, and I don't think he does become obnoxious, but it is. It's one of those things that sits on the uh, borderline of captivating and repellent <laughs> at times. You're kind of going, oh, no, are you going to be too clever now? And, you know, he never does. He always tries to take you along with him, uh, which is to his credit, I think, why he's so popular. So. Yeah, I think so. But that, that's a book um, but- to look forward to for the year, which is nice. That's one of the ones, yeah, that's, uh, I have not started making a list of books to look forward to, but uh, that's one I could add to it. When is that coming out? July, I think. No, June. Yeah, late, late June, early Wait. July, I think, yeah. So it's not, not that far away, really. I mean, everybody wants to say, I, mean, I, tw- I was tweeting about the book earlier, and people are going, oh, what are we supposed to read until June? And part of me wants to say everything else in the field because, oh, my God, there are so many books. And the other part of me wants to say, it's like February already. I mean, come on. The, the year's half over and we didn't start. And I don't want to declare it half over, but I was out with some friends uh, yesterday. 
mm-hmm. and it came up how you know we're already into February and we're planning for travel in March, April, and October, and mm. I've already filled out most of my world, world sorry, my science, my uh, Hugo ballot to send in because those close in March, and I you watch. Understand. You watch. It's, we're going to turn around in a couple of podcasts, and the Hugo nominations will be out, and we'll be talking about 2014, mm-hmm. which is a little bit horrifying. <laughs> it's possible to get a little bit. Well, we've talked about this before on the on the podcast. It's it's yeah. possible to to get sidetracked. We could spend the whole year talking about various award nominations and award seasons, and 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 and. and that never ends, or it never ends until after World Fantasy. And then we can also spend a lot of time talking about how much time we spend talking about those things, which we've also done. <laughs> That's a bit meta, Gary, but, but yeah. Well, it's a bit know. meta, but it's true. But um, normally we do when we don't have a guest and we're not sure what we're going to talk about. <laughs> well, we have, we have officially now, we've sort of alluded slyly, obliquely, cryptically to the uh, Locust recommended reading list, which you and I saw at least in earlier iterations. Yeah, I had not seen the final iteration until the um, Locust Digital Locust is live now email came. So I, I was looking at that and thinking, um, no, the first thing is something we said before. First yeah. thing that strikes me on the Locust recommended reading list is that I cannot remember. I simply cannot remember as good a year in in, in short story collections. Well, well, no, I think no, I think that's true. I mean, we, we've touched on that before. Yes, uh, it is a ph- phenomenal year for short story collections. It is the longest list of short story collections I think we've ever published. Uh, so, so that's kind of nice. And it, and I think honestly, I think actually, what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to become more demanding and set higher standards for the books we let onto the recommended reading list in that area because I don't see it abating. Just on the on you know on the simple rule of thumb, if the number of stories being published goes up and up and up and up, then the number mm. of collections that are going to be uh, published are going to go up and up and up. You just have to increase standards. You can't put sixty collections on a list. Yes, you can. I think you can. I mean, if you had sixty really good novels in a year, would you want to suddenly say, okay, our standards are higher this year than they were last year because there are more good novels published? I don't know. Uh, if you if you have a particularly good year in in sh- short stories and novellas, which is a field you know a lot more than I do, because I depend mm-hmm. to you, I depend on you and Gardner and, and and David to tell me which stories I should have read from last year. But if there's a really terrific year, if there's just this blossoming of brilliant uh, novellas or something, yeah, uh, you can't say there are too many of them, and we're gonna we're gonna form a cutoff higher than it was last year. Well, we tend to, uh, it's a very arbitrary thing, and uh, Charles was always very flexible about this, and Liza is as well, so there's a common philosophy underpinning it. But there is a feeling of, well, if we recommended 30 novels last year, do we really want, do we need to recommend more than that? And we will recommend more than that if we need to, but do we need to? So there is a little bit of a numbers thing, because you're expect, trying to sort of keep the same proportion of recommendations or something, I guess, roughly. Because, I mean, one of the things about the recommended reading list, or any no, any recommended reading list, this isn't just Locus's, uh, is that it's got to exclude things by its nature. Now, mm. hopefully it's some common understanding of quality or something that, you know, underpins that that exclusion. But you are, you know, you're wanting to ha- to you know focus in on the best novels of the year and the best stories and all that kind of thing, and you know then what you hope is that our recommended reading list overlaps with somebody else's, overlaps with somebody else's, uh, overlaps with awards ballots, and suddenly you begin to see some sort of a vague consensus arriving that 2312 was one of the best science fiction novels of the year, and Jack Glass was, and In the Mouth oh. of the Whale was, and Blue Remembered Earth was, and whatever else it might be. I'm just picking those at na- random as I glance at the list on, on my computer monitor. Right. Um, and then you can sort of look back and say, hey, here's a sort of consensus. And there will always be things that fall through the net, and there will always be things that are, you know, sh- you know we, we should have recommended. Um, I was saying to Marianne, when the February issue was released digitally the other day, mm-hmm. that I felt Charles would have loved, and in retrospect hated, uh, how the list comes out these days. Because there's an immediate reaction, you know. Uh, there's a whole yeah. flurry of people on Twitter going, "Oh wow, it's out!" Then going through and saying, "Isn't it great to see this?" And or saying, "Oh, they're terrible. They couldn't find their asses with their elbows because that book there is terrible and doesn't belong on any recommended reading list." Uh, and they've missed this obvious one, and that's that. That's a, a really healthy and invigorating kind of response to get to it. Well, it is. I mean, I, I, I've not followed a lot of blogs and tweets. I mean. 
generally what you see when the recommended reading list comes out is everybody who's on it tweets and blogs about, I'm on it, I'm on it. Yeah. And uh, by and large, people who aren't on it uh, keep silent, is my sense. Uh, yeah. I think it's. I, I think what's important about the list, uh, and this is where I, I disagreed with Charles all along. Uh, Charles clearly wanted to in, influence the award season. He wanted yeah. to influence Hugo's. He wanted to influence Nebulous. He wanted to influence World Fantasy Awards. And the only a small proportion of our recommended reading list are going to end up on those ballots. Yeah. The ones that interest me really are the ones that aren't the consensus titles, yeah. the ones that are a little bit controversial, the ones that people don't agree with. There's a lot of dissatisfaction, for example, with the Hydrogen Sonata. Yeah. Uh -huh. But there were people who loved it. Well, that, that, that's a good thing. Isn't that what you, you would hope for? That's exactly my point. Um, so th th there are things that uh, seem to me to represent different kinds of um, tastes, and I, I think one of the problems we have is we don't we don't have to have the remit of the science fiction writers of America, of the, or of the Hugo voters, or of the World Fantasy voters plus judges. What the Locust List is is saying: these are books that are worth reading, whether or not they get awards, whether they get nominated. We think they're recommended. We think they're worth reading, and there's a lot of different territories in there. I mean. Uh, you know, there's a lot of distance between, let's say, um, John Scalzi's Red Shirts and yep. M. John Harrison's Empty Space. Of course there is. Uh, just and they're both absolutely recommendable. Yes, they are. Uh, it, it, and the other thing, I guess, is um, you always want to allow that when you talk about recommendable in this context, it doesn't mean that any particular individual in the, on the, the, for want of a better way of describing it, I guess, the recommended panel, recommending panel, Agree on everything. Mm. You know, there are books on the recommended reading list that I don't like at all. Um, and that's fine. That's how it should be. You know, and I'm sure there are books on there that you're not especially interested in reading. But across that spectrum of people... Yeah, but I can, yeah, I can completely understand. You're, you're, you're talking about recommending books. Uh, and again, this is something we've talked about before. And Charles and uh, talked to you about it and to me about it. That in 1968, when Locust started, and throughout most of the 70s... You could recommend a list of books with the assumption that your readership, the readership of Locust, you knew what that readership was, you knew what they'd like, and you were recommending what that yeah. readership was like. That readership doesn't yeah. exist. No, no, I don't think it does. And in fact, it, you know, it's, it's now all, well, the future is, is full of a fragmented readership, and we just have to allow for that, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't imagine doing something that I might have done once upon a time, which is, say, taking this reading list, buy all the science fiction novels off it, and just read them all. Yeah, I don't have any impulse to do that at all. Um, there's a few books there that I've not read that I would like to have read, but I'm unlikely to have the time the time to. But the, but you know, by and large, you know, tell what is interesting about the recommended reading list, or no, not the recommended reading list, the recommended reading issue, right, or the, the annual oh, year over right. is the other summary information that it includes, because it does talk a little bit to at least the amount of information Locus can locate about the health of the field. Yeah, so, the numerical, the statistics and things. Well, yeah, and I mean stats can be a bit boring, and I don't—I mean, I don't particularly want to read through all of the detail, though I know some people do, and they're very interested. Yeah. But I mean, it's interesting to know that we're publishing new hard, more more new hard covers, um, this year, than we, or last year than in the pre, pre you know, every year for the preceding ten, and that they're increasing and increasing in raw numbers. I mean, Locus saw eight hundred and fourteen mm -hmm. new hardcover science fiction fantasy books last year. Which is I think that's fascinating, and I think but you can also see it shifting a little bit. I mean, one of the interesting blog posts that I saw within the last couple of weeks was was John Scalzi's showing how red yeah. shirts sold in different formats in audiobooks, sure, and uh, and, and and hardcover, and uh, and as he pointed out very uh, very correctly, Old Man's War ten years earlier had a completely different profile. Yeah, but but authors need all those venues now to make up. Uh, a, a complete audience. I, I think so. It would, it would be great if Locus had accurate ebook figures because what you're seeing now is that across the last 10 years, hardcover uh, publication is, is increasing consistently. Trade paperbacks appear possibly to have peaked, though it's hard to say exactly just because there's a small number of, uh, yeah, there's not a huge variation yet, but they appear to have peaked. Uh, yeah. Paperbacks have been on a, a, a steady decline, and I think they'll continue to do so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would expect to, you know, to see uh, that that continue as the ebook comes up because everybody, I think, not that, that's a vast generalization. It is a point of view that ebooks will ultimately replace the mass market paperback, 
and I think that's plausible to me. Well, I think it's plausible, and I think we can see evidence of it already. First of all, uh, one of the odd things, it's interesting, if you go back and look around 19, late 1940s, mid-1940s, what people complained about was how paperbacks were hard to read. They were small type, they were small books, they, and, and there was a lot of, there was a little bit of a battle going on with publishers like Grosset and Dunlap publishing really cheap hardcover reprints of yeah. things like Tarzan and competing with the paperbacks. Well, what's interesting now is that ebooks are not only generally cheaper, but easier to read than yeah. mass market paperbacks. That's true. Uh, and certainly, I mean, I've actually had p discussions with people about reading magazines now. And as we said, uh, in fact, somebody pick, picked us up, uh, Dark Magazine picked us up and said, you know, we, we'd said that all, everything on the Kindle looks lousy, which I th actually think was your quote, Gary, not mine. And I was not talking about the Kindle Fire. I don't know about the Kindle Fire. But I was saying that all magaz that I, the magazines are fantastic on the, uh, on the on the iPad or whatever else, and I really think that's that's true, and you'll see that continue to be the case. Uh, and was, like Locus has recommended reading this. Locus itself is much easier to read, I think, on on the kin the uh, iPad than it ever was in print. Yeah. It's but on the other hand, mm -hmm. when when Locus gets to things like the charts and the diagrams and the circulation figures. Or when Locus publishes a forthcoming books list, I like to have that in front of me in paper because I can leaf back and forth. Yeah, it's it's interesting as well. I mean, I'm looking at the um, raw numbers of books published by uh, various publishing houses as identified mm -hmm. by Locus. So these are books they've actually received or seen, and may not be the actual numbers, but they're it's something indicative, I guess. Mm. And we, yeah, you, know, you, you continue to see Penguin, Random House, Har Harper Collins, Simon Schuster, and Tor really being out in the front for the raw numbers of books. Right. But uh, Del Rey, Dor, and Rock are actually, in terms of numbers of books published, not that dissimilar from Nightshade, Solaris, uh, Angry Robot. Uh, and I find that interesting. I find it interesting that Nightshade published more books than Harper Voyager did in 2012. That's interesting. That's fascinating, yeah. Uh, but then again, you're talking about imprints versus publishers. Well, but fair enough. But I mean, Harper, Harper Voyager, for example, is Harper Collins's big science fiction imprint, or science fiction fantasy imprint. So right. there is some degree of like to like a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you look at just based on original books published right now, I mean, way out in the front is Penguin by some margin. Yeah. Uh, but when you get down to, to middle numbers, Dor pu published three, you know, thirty-six new titles. Black Library 34, Angry Robert 33, Nightshade 33, Solaris 33. Um, Bane is smaller. Bane's about the same size as Subterranean based on new p titles published, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, I'm sure that the, I have no other, other idea of other metrics. Um, and probably total books, they're actually you know, the, somewhat I'm, bigger I'm still. Yeah, I'm not looking at that right now like you are, but I yeah. mean, there are things that Bane are doing. Didn't, didn't Bane do the massive John Kessel collection? As an yes, e they did as an ebook, and that, that's going to be a, a distorted factor in the future. Yeah, yeah. So th that probably doesn't show up in those figures. I'm going to guess. No, it doesn't. There is a, something here that ties in with my personal, maybe it's my all new personal campaign for the Hugo's, because every mm -hmm. now and again, every year, I announce a campaign that I never follow through on. So this will be this year's campaign that I probably won't follow through on. I think the Golan's editorial team deserve to be up for best long, uh, best editor long form this year. Oh, no, no, because of everything they're doing. Um, there are three, well, two or three main acquisition editors. The ones that come to mind are Julian Redfern and Simon Spanton. And then, of mm -hmm. course, there's the uh, the longtime head of Golance. I mean, I think he's moved on above that, but still has an involvement as Malcolm Edwards. And Malcolm yeah. Ed Edwards certainly deserves a Best Editor long-form Hugo Award. Uh, everybody tries to attribute editing to a particular person. My understanding is that Malcolm Edwards has always been Mike, Mike Harrison's editor, so he's edited uh, mm -hmm. uh, Ace, and on, for that alone, he would probably deserve, in my mind, a nomination. But one well, I mean, thing, he, certainly deserves, he, he certainly deserves it for his career. I mean, he is yeah. certainly the most influential editor, I'm going to say, in the last 20 or 30 years in the UK. Yeah, but Golan's had the number of recommended books on our recommended reading list this year. Uh, and that's because of the editorial team. And if you think about the books you start describing as being the bests of the year, a fair number of them immediately, Jack Glass, um, Empty Space, and the, the Mouth of the Whale, Blue Remembered Earth, are all Golan's titles. All right, and and others like Red Shirts will become Golan's titles. Uh, they are Golan's titles already, yeah. Yeah, okay, so they are, yeah. Right. 
Um, so f- f- from that from that perspective, you know, I think it's well, you know, they, it's a, a well-deserved um, nominate or would be well-deserved nomination, and everybody should seriously think about it because it is true that that uh, a U.S.-based award like the World, the Hugo tends to overlook non-U.S. achievement, and this is an area where it's easy to. So Malcolm Edwards for the Hugo, Simon Spanton, Gillian Redfern as well, in my to my mind. And yes, that's probably going to be These are also recommendations. And I forgot who it was that posted this a couple of weeks ago. That, uh, there are a lot of categories that people like myself mm. don't vote on because we don't know anything about it. I don't know anything about fan artists. I mean, I, I, I would like to know more about fan artists. Best fan writer is a category I've also overlooked until I started realizing that there are um, writers like Abigail Nussbaum, who I'd never thought of as fan writers, but by the rules of the Hugo Awards, they are. Yeah. Yep. So there are a number of people that our friend Charles Tan is in that category, I suppose. Yes, he is. Charles Tan so are, is eligible for the best fan writer. I don't know if people feel the same way about it. I think Lavi Tidhar for his uh, World SF blog would be eligible. In, uh, I, I think uh, Jonathan Macromont. I'm quite serious yeah. about this. I'm not just winding Jonathan up when I joke with him on Twitter. Um, even if he refers to us the, as the Mullers of Crude Street, you know. Which at Brighton I'm probably going to have to have words with him about. I think Gary will both be there. Um, oh, Gary, we should have Jonathan McElmont on the podcast in Brighton, a special Mullers of Crude Street edition. <laughs> yes, with sound effects. With sound effects, yes, and possibly thumb screws. Um, but uh, Jonathan, I think, is well deserved of, of a best fan writer well, a, a lot of the most provocative writing that goes on about science fiction now goes on in blogs, goes on in websites, goes on in in e-zines and that sort of thing. And it, it doesn't, it, it, it tends to flare up and disappear yeah. relatively quickly. I mean, the, yep. the, the the classic example last year, it would be interesting if um, there was some kind of Hugo for the um, best eruption of the year, uh, <laughs> the, the, the best debate of the year, the best volcano of the year or something. Uh, Paul Kincaid certainly started that, it, it, was, it was maybe, what, six weeks long. But between oh, Paul Kincaid's essay his review in the uh, Los Angeles Review of Books, and Jonathan McElmont's response to it. Sure. That was one of the most important discussions that went on in science fiction last year. I think it was. I think uh, some of it was quite self-evident, so it wasn't sort of uh, stunningly surprising. But it was something that people really wanted to talk about, they really wanted to know mm-hmm. about. And I think, you know, I think it was great. I mean, I, I actually think, and we'll talk about elsewhere, I, I think... Um, Macklemont and Kincaid are critics that are really, or co- and commentators who are really worth engaging with. I mean, I, I rec- to, to my mind, I recognize Macklemont as a particular kind of critic at this point in his career. I think he's that very, very important uh, kind of commentator that, that I would summarize as being an angry young man who says fuck a lot. Mm-hmm. And the great value of angry young men who say fuck a lot, even if they're angry young women or whatever else, is that they come along and they stir, they, they, help till the soil of the field, make you reconsider your prejudices. And you might not agree with them. They might come along and say, what you're doing is rubbish for this reason. But uh, mm. I think when they come from, when their comments come from a position that's generally, genuinely concerned with a, motivated by a passion for the field and a, um, a desire to see things better and improved, then I think, that, that's worth engaging with. So I think, you know, I mean, Macklemont is, is really one of the more interesting young critics. I mean, there's, a, there's actually a, a, a good batch of, you know, young critics around at the moment who are sort of really establishing themselves. I mean, he's one, Neil Harrison is one, uh, so is Karen Burnham. Um, there's the other Neil, Alexander, is it? Um, and a couple others who are around. Interesting people to hear talk. I mean, and and then sort of back here, back, back here down under, you know, we've got Tansy Roberts and the Galactic Suburbia crew. So, so right. there's lots of, lots of interesting stuff around. Um, and, also, yeah, and there is something we should also plug, although I don't have the details of it in front of me. Mm-hmm. And that is, there is this master class in science fiction criticism that takes place in London every summer. And you mentioned Karen Burnham and uh, Jonathan McElmont and Neil Harrison and Graham Slight. And, yes, yes, uh, Graham Slight. Let's not forgive him. Stacey, mm-hmm. he's all in the class that I taught, along with Jeff Ryman and... and, and uh, Gary, you can't claim them all. Sorry. And they were they were they were way ahead of me. Uh, I had no problem. But my point is that you, you cannot make an entire generation of science fiction critics basically well well they're all dis- descendants of mine because I actually you know I, I taught them Gary. It's a little bit egotistical, Gary. Well, I, well, I could, well, I could have said it that way. I don't think I said it that way. <laughs> but and, and Graham is teaching it this year, as a matter of fact. Is he that uh, old already? Yes. Wow. 
it's a Graham, and I don't. I'm, I'm uh, unfortunately not remembering who the uh, fiction writer is. There generally is one uh, critic, uh, like like commercial critic, I guess. Okay. Somebody. There is one academic, and there is one novelist. Do you know what you're gonna have to do, Gary? In Brighton, you're gonna have to you have to bring a small gift for Graham, because I'm sure Graham will be there. You have oh. to bring him a bring him a pipe because obviously he's now if he's now teaching sort of a class that you taught he would now officially be an old fart and you can have a handing over of the pipe. That's true. Although although that's 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 archaic thinking on your part. <laughs> Having a pipe when I began teaching uh, <laughs> shortly after the Civil War, you could smoke a pipe in the classroom. You could wear a tweed jacket with leather patches and that sort of thing. Even in the even even in the Master class that we had, which ended up because of some catastrophe, which Farrow Mendelssohn brilliantly solved, ended up taking place in the upstairs meeting room of a Marxist Turkish cafe or something like this. Um, and it was lovely. It was, was, every, was everybody wearing tweed jackets with leather elbow, uh, elbow okay. patches and have, having not a at pipe? All. Not at all. I, my pipe didn't impress anybody at all. <clears throat> They're not real critics then. No. <laughs> But it's, my point is, yeah. and this may not happen in the United States. It's interesting. There were maybe three Americans in that class, mm -hmm. people who had gone all the way over. As, as, as I mentioned, Karen was there. There was a lady from Arkansas, I believe, and Stacey Haynes was there, and maybe one other. Uh, I don't know why England and Australia seem to generate more energetic and engaged science fiction critics than the United States, which is a much larger country. And the, before I get in trouble for saying that, science fiction has, in the, the American science fiction criticism, has a very impressive list of academic critics, of people who publish in magazines and journals like Extrapolation and Journal of the Fantastic and the Arts. But that kind of belletristic approach to science fiction, which has always been a tradition and mm. foundation, it's a tradition pioneered, obviously, by Clute. Uh, it's not a university-based tradition. Yeah, uh, doesn't seem to have taken uh, hold here. Even in the UK, you've got, I mean, you, even in Australia, you've got you've got people like Damien Broderick, who's not maybe there and maybe not there, depending on where he is. He's in Texas, uh, but yeah, in Texas, but by and large, he's. But you've got Broderick, you've got Janine Webb, you've got Russell and Jenny Blackford, you've got Peter Nichols, one of the great critics of the history of the field. Uh, uh, Donald Tuck. Yeah, so 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 the, there's a long tradition in Australia. Mm -hmm. A fan scholarship. Donald Tuck is probably the grandfather of that as well. Yes. And we do have some of that in the United States, but uh, its I don't know why it's not as strong a tradition. I don't know either. Maybe they're too busy uh, trying to become writers. Um, nothing wrong with that. No, no, um, no, no. But certainly you could argue that the, the history of encycl encyclopedias in science fiction uh, internationally is a profoundly Australian thing, given that the, the two uh, great encyclopedias... The two great encyclopedias in the history of the field are Australian in origin. The Donald Tuck one and then the Clute, the Nichols, which became the Clute Nichols. Yeah. So, yes. Excellent. And, I think there's, a, and there's been a long tradition of uh, idle on your own magazine of publishing fairly serious criticism at a time when there was little, I would imagine, little yes. opportunity in Australian academia to publish such criticism yes. of science. That's pro well, that's probably true, yes. And hey, for about 10 minutes, I actually launched my own critical magazine as well. The Kutcher mm -hmm. Review of Science Fiction, which ran for one stunning issue. <laughs> well, except we've been doing sequels to it for two and a half years now on this podcast. <laughs> well, actually, it, no, it wouldn't, but I was going to say it'd be interesting to pull out the Kutcher Review of Science Fiction and see if you could structure a, put, a, a podcast around the structure of that magazine. But I don't think I have the energy or the time to do it because it would be very fiddly. Well, there were there were there were these in between magazines here in the states. Before I was writing for Locus, I was writing for a magazine called Fantasy Review, which was started by somebody named Paul Allen, who was not the one who, not that Paul Allen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then was edited by um, Robert Collins, and it was clearly it was one of these critical journals. The only thing that looks like it at all now is is David Hartwell's New York Review of Science Fiction, and it was energetic. It was writers and academics and fans and all these people coming together in one place. Yeah. And in, I think online that happens more now. I think that does happen. But I don't think that there are too many magazines left like that. That's true. That's true. Speaking of magazines, there is one sort of interesting little side thing because it's been on my mind to mention this, and that is uh -huh. it's interesting to see the impact of 
digital publication on magazines. There's a magazine summary in each recommended reading yeah, issue. Yeah, right. I was, I was looking at that earlier. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, this year, for example, or, or for this year we'll read 2012, um, Asimov's overall circulation has gone up by 10%, which is pretty phenomenal given you know the modern you know, the situation ar- yeah. around. Uh, and I think it's of the magazines that it real figures for, there's only four magazines that got real figures for, uh, it's the one that had the biggest uptick. And that was with digital subscriptions. It's now got 21,000 subscriptions overall. And I think, what, 10,000 of those, nearly 50%. It's about 45%. But 45% of Asimov's total subscription base now is digital. Which I think is really a healthy sign. And I was noticing that Locus's slow, long decline is is leveling off because of digital subscriptions. Yeah, it's been fairly stable. I'll admit, I was sad to see that it was down uh, by another 6% this year. I'd like to, I'd yeah. love to see positive growth, and I'm now going to put shameless plug number 500 because all we do is talk about Locus here. I mean, if you go to www.locusmag.com for not that much money, you'll get interviews, re- reviews, and commentaries on, on Locus, which is what I think is, is worth it, not just because we work on it, but because it covers all kinds of right. good stuff. And, you know, they've got about 4,500 subscribers approximately, uh, which is great. Um, but it would be nice to see the digital subscriptions and everything else increasing because I think it's really uh, invigorated the magazine. So maybe maybe we'll talk. That, yeah. I, I think that the other thing, when, when we look at things like a recommended reading list, and when I was looking at the responses on the blogosphere and on Twitter to the, uh, there are things, there are compilations like that. Uh, the forthcoming books list. There are things that are just not convenient to put on a website. No. So when Locus gathers together, as it will in March, the forthcoming books issue, uh, when it gathers together uh, all the books received from the UK and that sort of thing, that's not that's not gripping reading. It's a list, but it's a very important list to refer to. Yeah. And it's one that having it to refer back to, I find myself doing this. Now, you can do this with the digital Locus as well. Mm. But I find myself, for example... When I'm trying to figure out what do I want to review, I'm going back to the last forthcoming books, yes. which I believe in November or December, and thinking, okay, I need to look at that now. Yeah, I actually have a little digital um, repository of my own recommended reading essays to make sure I'm not repeating myself too much. Do you get the same sense I do when you look at a recommended reading list and see a bunch of books or, uh, or collections or anthologies, or whatever, that you didn't make and you have this sinking feeling, I'm not... I may never get to them unless I quit yes. Locust. I've got to read things six months in advance. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I completely feel that. What I try to uh, keep hold of and what I would hope maybe uh, our listeners might try to keep hold of if they're feeling a little bit jaded about it is I try to keep hold of the feeling I used to feel when the recommended reading list came out back in the mid-80s and early 90s mm. because I was thrilled when it came out. I was really excited. I'd want to read all the recommendations. I would go through yeah. and pull out the books that were being recommended and buy a whole bunch of other stuff. And I'd be, there may even be there, there was stuff on the list I may, maybe would never have heard of. And that was another tag to go off and try and find this thing and read it. And, you know, so that then I would know more about the field than I did at the moment. And right. hopefully there would be great, great, there'd be great reading hidden in there, you know. Uh, and maybe I wouldn't like all of it, but I'd like some of it. Uh, and also, I mean, I like the idea of having an informed opinion about the field. You know, of knowing whether I liked The Ruined City by Paula Brandon or The Drowning Girl by Caitlin Kiernan or The Broken Lands by Kate Milford or something. Uh, so for that reason alone, I, I, I like, I love this thing. I don't know whether it has the same impact because th- the internet particularly gives you so much ongoing dialogue about the field that this feels more blended into being a part of that rather than being a great, huge, big thing in it in the year. I think, it, I think it is, but I think the Locust List has the advantage of representing some sort of consensus among people who read a lot and know a lot about what they're reading. It's not necessarily uh, that uh, everybody agrees, obviously, there are things. And uh, just, just, just to whine for a second, I should point out that there are things that don't fit into any category, <laughs> so I don't, such as my uh, collection of Library uh-huh. of America novels, which is not, I guess, an anthology and not anything that fits in the list. So there are things that don't make it. But there, at the same time, is um, a sense that people have looked at these novels. There are at least a couple of people who have argued for them. By and large, and you and I have both been involved in the discussions, 
there's almost no torpedoing that goes on in the locust list. You see very little of, very, uh, very seldom have I seen when we were debating this uh, online, somebody saying, I will, I will die before I let you put that novel on the list. In other words, what we, what the, what the committee is generally looking for are things that are recommendable to a multiple readership, not to the, Absolutely, yeah. and, and that was always the case. I mean, the, the one I always remember was uh, arguing with Tra Charles over All the Wares of Pern by Anne McCaffrey, mm -hmm. which, if I recall correctly, and maybe you'll hear keystrokes as I double-check, actually, I think it was actually the Hugo Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. Uh-huh. Uh, and if that's the case, I remember being at the time being absolutely appalled. I, did, I read that book I, you know, from cover to cover, from the mildly cheesy Michael Palin cover all the way to the you know, the end. And I thought that book was execrable. I, I mean, and I, I don't use that term lightly. I think it's a terrible book with a stupid premise that undercuts <laughs> it, the, 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 the entirety of the Pern series, such, such as it is. Um, and I was horrified that it made the ballot, the Hugo ballot, which it did in 1992. Mm -hmm. Um an awful, awful, awful book. And it made the recommended reading list as well. I'm going like, yeah, what are you doing? And Charles's response, other than sort of shut up and go away, was it's a vastly popular book. There's a skill to writing a popular book. And lots of people responded really strongly to it, you know. And so for that reason, and I'm looking at the 1992 Hugo ballot covering 1991 and the, you know, that year's books, which were for, uh, where was it, for presented in Florida. Horrible Hugo ballot in some ways, mm. uh, for, in novel, because it was what, uh, Barayar by Bujold, which actually is a very good book. All yes, the Words of Prune, which is a lousy, lousy novel. Bone Dance by Emma Bull, which is an interesting but minor novel. Stations of the Tide, which is a good novel. The Summer Queen, which is, I think, a disappointing sequel to The Snow Queen, but had a nice Michael Whalen cover on it. Yeah. And a really awful Orson Scott Card novel, Xenocide. Zen yeah, that was not good. <laughs> so it wasn't. It's, 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 it, are, are you are you sort of implicitly blaming Michael Whelan's covers for getting undeserving novels, Hugo no. nominations? No. But Michael Whelan's covers are very powerful. They are, but it also goes to show that you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Um, well, that's... sow's ear out of a silk purse, something, whatever it is. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, oh. uh, it just goes to show that. The, I guess the point, to circle back and not just sort of lambast that poor Anne McCaffrey's novel, yeah. because she wrote some other good stuff, but um, representing a spectrum of taste, you will put in things that one person thinks is poor and somebody else thinks is good. And the, the, there is an attempt, a genuine attempt in the, re, in the re recommended reading list to do that, to, to have a spectrum. I mean, if I were to put, put up Jonathan Strand's 2012 recommended reading list, I would omit things that are on this list and add other things and I would imagine that would be true for any individual well, commentator yes, anywhere. Yes, so, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> that's the recommended reading list, Gary. But there are, I guess, what, I guess what I think of when I look at the recommended reading list, and there are things on it I've never read, there are things I never intend to read, there are things I don't want to read. Mm -hmm. What I want to look at, and this, this is unfair because I had a, a vote in the list, as did you. I want to make sure the stuff I did like is there. I don't care if the stuff that other people liked is there. I More, more power to this. Yes. It, it, and I think, I think the Pern argument, I think Charles' argument for the Pern argument is a valid one. There is a segment of real science fiction, the real science fiction fantasy reading community that responds to those books. Yeah. Um, well, was one, one of the interesting things that was, uh, I think, showed up, I think it was in this uh, month's Locus as well, was the uh, best-selling science fiction books of the last 10 years or something, maybe the best science fiction, best-selling mm -hmm. science fiction in the mainstream, looking at Bookscan and that sort of thing, it still is Ender's Game. Yes. Oh, yeah. It, it, that sells a couple hundred thousand copies every year. But that's because yeah. it's on school curricula. Which is disturbing. It is very disturbing, but that that's where it is in this disturbing world. And no mm -hmm. doubt it, sales will increase when um, the movie comes out mm -hmm. next year. <laughs> or is it this year? Sometime, anyway. Uh, I will say the under... The underpinning concept for me with the reading list is advocacy. It is promoting the stuff you think is worthwhile and maybe ignoring the rest. And when the list works well, it picks out books like Midnight and Moonshine by Hannah and Slatter or Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck mm. uh, and hopefully has people looking to them and reading them when they might otherwise not. 
know, there's no great skill, honestly, in highly obvious yeah. recommendations. I mean, 2312 was always going to make the list, and should do, deserves to, but uh, isn't exactly what we'd call uh, a difficult pick. But it's interesting to see Blueprints of the Afterlife by Ryan Budno on the list or something like that. Uh-huh. It's a book you've not, I've not heard of, so need to go and read. So, yeah. There were books on the list I didn't know about at all. But but by and large, I don't think, and I, I hope nobody reads it this way, uh, that the Locust Recommended Reading List means you have to, by, by next year at this time, you have to have read all the fantasy novels and all the science fiction novels because some of them are just going to bounce off of of course, I mean, and I mean, you look at me. I'm probably there. Are, there's a lot of stuff on this list I didn't comment on at all, uh-huh. uh, to, largely because I mean, like, I don't, I don't really. This last few years, I've put in very little comment on the novel lists, because I rec, you know, I read a couple of dozen novels in a year at the moment now, <clears throat> and there, there are books that I think that are excellent enough that I can recommend them on their own terms, and I feel energetic. I do so energetically, but. You know, there's an awful lot of stuff I just don't get to read. I've not read Every Day by David Levitan. I've not read uh, The Broken Lands. I didn't. Hey, I got through a chapter and a half of Rail Sea for crying out loud. Um, mm. So my comments on those books are, by and large, irrelevant. I've not read VN by Madeleine Ashby, though I've heard good good things about it. Um, I've not read Serafina by Rachel Hartman, and I actually am now kicking myself because at World Fantasy, it was in my book bag and I left it on the on the swap table when I came home. And it's it's being under discussion for some awards now, and it's turned out it's one of those. I, I had the same thing. I, I had a friend who brought it home. I didn't bring it home for the same reason you didn't, because I'd never heard of it. And suddenly, it sort of bobs to the surface, and I think that sort of thing is fascinating. Yeah, um, it, it, it is worth saying in, in our defense. So, in case anybody is wondering, the reason that we do this is because, uh, to some degree, there there are two different fu- uh, functions that are going on. There's the radar to try and find books, and then the filtering process to try and not have to read them all because you don't have enough time. Right. So, you know. And, no, and, and there's some books on the list that I don't intend to read, frankly. Mm, yeah, uh, don't, sure. I need to read. But there are also uh, books on the list that I that are by writers that I've long enjoyed. For example, um, uh, the, the um, Fourth Wall, the Walter John Williams novel. He's, he's a writer I've always enjoyed. I think he's a very skilled writer. I think he can do a number of different genres. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, he's... Um, in some ways, frankly, he's, it seems a little bit at sea. He, he sort of peaked at a while. He, he, everything he writes is competent. But uh, I keep thinking I'm going to see the Walter John Williams novel that is going to sort of move him back to the center of major canonical writers. And I think I have no doubt he's capable of doing it. Yeah, I think you're right. But whether it'll happen, whether and this is a novel I missed of his. John Varley, who I've not read in years, has a novel here. He's yeah. somebody that to me as a writer. Oh, I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't know to what extent. I mean, I don't know. I doubt that Mr. Varley listens to this podcast, and if he does, hello, John. Uh, but as motive, as, as thrilled as I was by his short fiction back in the seventies, I don't know that I've ever really thought he was much chop as a novelist. And this uh-huh. last group of novels that he's written, that he's written, uh, which our friend and colleague uh, Russell Let- Letson has read and uh-huh. reviewed for Locus, haven't really. Um, inspired me very much to, to, to sort of check out. I mean, Slow Apocalypse looks fine. Uh, Red Thunder, Red Lightning, and Rolling Thunder didn't really kind of float my boat. I didn't read Mammoth. In fact, I don't think I've read... Uh, the last Varley book I read was uh, Steel Beach back in 1992. So that was pretty impressive, as I recall. It was. It was good. Good book. And so, so that's what I mean. There's, there's, there's a sense... There are a number of writers who seem to be on the way to Becoming, let's say, I don't know, the next Joe Haldeman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and it, it never seems to quite happen to most of them. Um, on the other hand, there are writers, I'm, I'm slipping down and looking at the fantasy lists now. There's some writers that just kind of consistently impress me. I mean, um, my, uh, I've got two best fantasy novels of the year. It's okay, the, yeah. It's the Drowning Girl, Caitlin Kernan's Drowning Girl. And Grand Joyce is some kind of fairy tale, neither of which are as Ooh, any surprise to you. I, I would have picked a different one for you, so I'm surprised. I thought you'd have had Hide Me Among the Graves on that, but okay. Uh, Hide Me Among the Graves is close, but... Um, so the Joyce and the Kiernan, okay. The, the, the Kiernan, first of all, the Kiernan is doing something that she's never done before. I like to see writers... Well, hang on, t- people keep telling me, and I've not read the book, that she's doing something much, much better that she actually kind of did in The Red Tree. She's something that she sort of rehearsed in the Red Tree. Okay. Uh, 
the, from, from the well, point of view... Well, roasting is kind of like doing it before, isn't it? Well, yeah. And she, going back to things like Silk, you can see her leading toward this. Yeah. But this is somebody learning how to write. You could look at... Oh, she will kill me for this. We can have her on the podcast, and she can come in on the podcast. We get huge downloads. Um, I think most of what she's written before The Drowning Girl, you can look at as a rehearsal for The Drowning Girl. Yeah. I think this is really the novel she's wanted to write for a long time. Her short fiction is a little bit different. Her short fiction is a little bit all over the map. Yeah. Um, the the Graham Joyce thing, it seems to me, is another writer who's moving more and more into a specific territory of his own. Yeah. And you can see a movement from, um, well, some kind of fairy tale before this and um, the facts of life before that. And going back, again, you can find seeds of this kind of thing back to his early novels, uh, like the Tooth Fairy and Dreamside mm-hmm. and so forth. So you can see you can see a writer going in the direction that you think this person is going to write something really special, and they start doing that. I think the same thing is true of Tim Powers. But the thing is, I think Tim Powers, by and large, has figured out how to do what he wants to do. I'm going to quibble. Story. Stop now. I, I'm going to quibble with you, and can I tell you why? Okay. You are falling victim to recommend locus recommended reading bracket restriction you look at that yeah i'll tell you why you've looked at the fantasy novels list and you've said your two top fantasy novels are the the joyce and the kiernan now they're in my top five novels of the year frankly i loved and adored both books uh i think they're they're just excellently interesting some kind of fairy tale remains not my favorite joyce book it's in my top three and the kiernan book is just staggeringly good but we got mixed genres here and mixed stuff because the, the two categories that fall below it on the list, young adult and first novels, both incorporate well, fantasy true. as well. Uh, and so you're immediately excluding books like, okay, to me, the number one writer that I would want to shove down the – that I would want to shout to American readers about particularly is Frances Harding. She is the 21st century Joan Aiken. Really? She, yes, absolutely. She's extraordinary. And A Face Like Glass is a terrific book. And not enough people read her. Uh, so, I mean, that that novel is another in my, my top five. Uh, I th- mm-hmm. And I would strongly, strongly encourage it and would sit in my top two or three fantasy novels of the year, definitely. But because it sits under young adult, we've excluded it. And I understand right. why we have the categories. It's not a criticism of the list. But I think it's worth re- remembering that these other books, I mean, like, so uh, you just look at Black Heart by Holly Black, Zuglodon by J- Jim Blaylock, The Diviners by oh. Libby Bray, Libba Bray, Radiant Days, Face Like Glass, Sea Hearts, slash Brides of Rollwreck Island, you know, uh, Rail Sea. Uh, these are all fantasy novels as well. The Girl Who Fell Beneath Fairyland and Led the Revels There by Catherine Valenti, probably one of the most r- improved and interesting writers of the last five years. One of the best books of the year, according to... Yeah. I will confess. I will. I will. Okay. I will. Mea culpa. When I was saying that those are the two novels, I was looking at the recommended list of fantasy yeah, novels, I which I think is a it, it's a flaw in the system because it, it does segregate fantasy novels from young adult books. And when I went down to young adult books, I immediately began to see things like uh, Radiant Days by Elizabeth Hand, yep. Drowning Cities by Alphabetical Novels, which I read. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's and I was arguing this uh, in some recent review column that um, I can understand in terms of categories because we want to give out lots of awards and the more categories the more awards I can understand the distinction between young adult books for example and fantasy and science fiction books yeah um, but in terms of things like Hugo you don't make those distinctions yeah so is for example the Drowned Cities a reasonable candidate for a Hugo award yes and it of course be. it is. Of course it is. But in the Locust Recommended Reading List, we don't have it under science fiction novels. We have it under young adult. And and it'll, that's that's also an issue with the, um, I think, with the uh, Locust Poll. I mean, I, I have a lot of affection for Locust Poll, and uh, I'm not trying to criticize it. This is not a kick the Locust Poll or the Locust Recommended Reading issue either. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, there tends to be a feeling, I guess, that the stuff should only be eligible in one category. So if uh, Drowned Cities is up for young adult, it shouldn't be up for best science fiction novel. And I think that it should. I think you should be able to win both categories with the same book, frankly. That's my feeling. Uh, now, I might vote for something else. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to go into it right here, but I might vote for something else in those categories. But I don't see why, if, if a book happens to be young adult, it should only be eligible in the young adult category. 
We should probably check with Liza about this or with our, our, our universal scorekeeper, Cheryl Morgan. I, it seems to me that in the past, in the Locus Awards, there have been uh, novels that were both up for best novel and best personal. Yeah. It seems to me, for example, that The Wind-Up Girl was. Yeah. And yes. it's possible to win in categories. I, I, I guess uh, it is. I mean, uh, uh, maybe we should, I mean, maybe actually we should just, we should bring Liza on sometime soon just to talk around some of this stuff, just because I don't want to sort of... Mm -hmm say there are rules that I, because I, I tend to pay half attention to that side of things uh, and then you say something and somebody goes oh well, it's terrible and you go no 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 I, I, we'll, we'll get her in because I don't think there are, I don't know how hard and fast the rules are so let's leave that topic yeah. Gary and we'll maybe get Liza in to clarify it I will say and I'm ready as, as we get towards the end of this episode Gary because we are getting towards the end of this episode of the Crude Street Podcast no no certainly not we must have hours to go yet oh I'm sure no no it just feels like hours it will. I will say that if you go to www.locusmag.com, and this is an advertisement, Gary, if you go to locusmag.com and click on the subscribe button, uh, you wow. can buy buy Locus, and you can get uh, twelve issues for seventy-five bucks if you want print and the digital copy. Uh, it's uh, I think about seventy-seven dollars to get the print copy around the world. Uh, you can buy the recommended re reading issue as, as a digital version in EPUB, Kindle, or PDF for five dollars fifty, uh, or get the uh, twelve issues for the year for forty-eight bucks. That's just four bucks uh, a month, and I think it's well yeah. worth it. I mean, I'd like to see us pick up another thousand print, uh, you know, digital subscribers over the year. So if you love the Crude Street podcast, do consider uh, su supporting Locus because uh, we are both involved in it, and we both love it, and we think it's got merit and value. And we're absolutely. Um, yeah, we're obviously being completely unbiased here, aren't we? Uh, uh, yeah, come on, yeah. yeah. You, you and I don't pick up extra money if Locus gets more subscriptions. Well, actually, hang on. The... on. Okay, on that one, yes. We, we, we don't have an actual conflict of interest in that sense. Uh, on the other hand, you know, in terms of f full disclosure and whatever else it is, we work for them. They're our friends. You've been working for them for six or seven hundred years. I've been working for them for ten or twelve years or seventeen years or something. And so, yeah, you know, but but that's not new. Everybody who listens to the podcast knows that we're not just Cood Street people. We're Locust people too. And right. I didn't get to discuss the other thing I wanted to discuss, Gary. This that it's too late. We've run out of time. We're out of time. Well, I mean, yeah. I, yesterday I sat down and I wrote the introduction. To fearsome journeys, the the Solaris new book, uh, the new Solaris book of fantasy, volume one. Right. Oh. So I've got a new anthology series. It would seem, without necessarily intending to, which is really interesting. Uh, I'm now editing this this new Solaris book of science and book of fantasy series, and the t there'll be a second volume. I've just arranged it to come out in 2014. Uh, and what I was going to talk about was defining fantasy and whether definitions are important. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. when, when, when Clute and Grant define fantasy as a, uh, a self-coherent narrative, uh, when set in this world, it tells a story that, which is impossible in the world as we perceive it. When set in another world, that other world would be impossible. The story set there may be possible in, in, in its terms. Is that a useful thing to anybody? Is it meaningful? You know, um, that sort of thing. You know, when... when um, Edward James and Farrah Mendelssohn say that major theorists in the field uh, agree that fantasy is about the construction of the impossible. Is that a meaningful, useful thing? That kind of thing. I thought it, it, it's a topic. I mean, does the academic description of our field contribute to the field, and is it important, or is it a sideshow? Um, is it important at the beginning of all these anthologies when you sit there and you agonize over what is space opera yeah. or cyberpunk or steampunk or whatever well, I, yeah I, I think this has been true i mean we have now a substantial history of criticism of science fiction and fantasy that you know what i i've written an essay about this but you know serious discussion of fantasy in the sense that we know it now probably goes back to uh a 1947 book called essays presented in honor of charles williams which included tolkien's essay on fairy tales and c.s lewis and and, and by and large, have have very many fantasy writers in the last 60 years looked at those essays or looked at, let's say, the works of Sam Moskowitz or, uh, or, or James Gunn, guest of honor this year. Uh, those are very worthwhile works, but I don't think any writer looks at them before they sit down to write the next novel. I, I think there's very little dialogue between you know, the 
same treatment of science fiction or fantasy and, and the writing of science fiction. True. But True. there are these overlaps. There are these writers going back to Tolkien and Lewis who wrote theoretical essays and going back to Jim Gunn and James Blish and Damon Knight who wrote interesting theoretical practical essays that did, I think, change the way people wrote the field, write in the field. Yeah. Well, this is a topic for future discussion. Maybe we will bring some of our academic friends on to chat about it. I don't know. But there's a podcasting future lying in front of us. We have 132 episodes behind us and hundreds more in front. But for now. I and think for now, we are almost well, we're done with another week. And I think we um, are. Yes, we should talk about the discourse about science fiction at a later time. Okay. Well, on that note, Farewell for this week, Gary. And we will talk again next week. And we remain now as ever, the Mullers of Coot Street. <laughs>